This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. At the time of this episode's release, we are days away from a potential government shutdown again. As is the case every time this happens, there are a few key issues that seem to derail all negotiations. Chief among them, this time, funding for Israel. But one thing that doesn't seem to be on the chopping block is the perennial third rail of American politics, Social Security. About 10,000 baby boomers retire every day, and the ratio of taxpayers contributing to Social Security versus retirees who need it is shrinking. So as the program rockets toward insolvency, in its current form at least, let's talk about Social Security as it exists now. Is it really the lifeline it's intended to be, or is it funneling money away from people who need it? These days, you've got retirees that are generally wealthier than the people who are funding their retirements through Social Security. It's a transfer of wealth. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine joins us to touch the third rail and argue for changes to Social Security. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. The Social Security Act was signed into law on August 14, 1935. At that time, there were 7.8 million Americans who were eligible to receive benefits. The first person to receive benefits was a woman named Ida May Fuller. She received that first monthly check in 1940. She was 66 years old and her check was $22.54, the equivalent of $498 today. Interestingly enough, according to the History Channel, Ida was a staunch small government conservative. And in the 1970s, she went on record opposing Social Security payout increases. When Ida died in 1975, she was 100 years old. She had paid into Social Security a little less than today's equivalent of $550 during about Four decades of retirement, she received more than 900 times her investment. Now, it probably won't shock you to hear that times have changed since Ida Mae Fuller got that first check. For one thing, as I mentioned, in 1935, less than 8 million Americans were eligible for Social Security. In 2020, almost 70 million Americans received Social Security. It's an important lifeline for a lot of retirees, but it is also a program that seems kind of untouchable for both parties. The third rail, it's been called. With insolvency coming as soon as 2033, it seems inevitable that something will have to be cut in order to keep Social Security afloat. The question is whether those cuts are other welfare programs or Social Security itself. Joining us to discuss this is Eric Baim, a reporter at Reason Magazine who has written extensively on Social Security. Hi, Eric. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so I don't want to characterize your opinion here. I mean, you know, this podcast is taking mostly relatively unpopular opinions and showing that we can have a civil disagreement about them. So what is this opinion you have about Social Security? Well, I think really before we get into that, I think we need to frame things a little bit, basically along the lines of what you did there at the start. But I want to just get a little deeper on that. You know, Social Security was a program that was created really to protect against destitution in old age. Like that's where this conversation should begin, because that's 
really the origins of the program. And we were talking about like destitution and poverty in the 1940s, right? Like, which is very different even from what we think of as poverty today, uh, a different kind of problem. So uh, look, the idea that, that people who are too old to work uh, shouldn't be left to starve is I think a pretty noble one. And even as a libertarian like myself, somebody who doesn't think the government should do all that much, that still seems like a pretty reasonable thing for the government to do, to provide that sort of base level for people uh, to stay out of old age destitution. But that's not what social security is anymore by and large, right? There are still certainly some older folks out there who might need help making ends meet, but the retirees are, are one of the richest cohorts in the country these days. Like they're some of the richest people in the country. So what you have as a program, the way Social Security operates is that it's basically a conveyor belt of, of money. It's a transfer of wealth from people who are young and working and productive because it's funded with payroll taxes. And so it takes that, those tax dollars and transfers them directly to retirees. And unlike in the 1940s, these days, You've got retirees that are generally wealthier than the people who are funding their retirements through Social Security. So I think we need kind of a radical rethink of the program. We can get into some of what that might look like or you know, some of the more details of why that is. But uh, I'll just leave you for this initial answer with, with one additional statistic here. You know, in 1960, not even when Social Security started, but just in 1960, there were more than five workers per beneficiary in Social Security. And today that ratio has dropped to less than three. It's about 2.8 workers per beneficiary. So you have fewer people funding retirement uh, of, of generally wealthier Americans. And I think like the fundamentals of what Social Security was meant to be and meant to do have really changed. So I'd love to reframe this debate away from the idea that those of us who are proposing reforms are somehow breaking a promise that was made to retirees, because that's not the case. That promise has been upended by, by decades of uh, of greater prosperity for Americans, which is great, also by changing demographics, economic growth. So like, of course, the structure of this program should change. We should be open to talking about it. And as you said at the beginning, Celeste, uh, you know, if, if we don't do anything about it, we're going to hit a brick wall in the 2030s anyway. So this conversation is coming whether Americans want to have it or not. And so we should have it sooner rather than later. Okay, but you wouldn't be here if um, you were only going to tell me about what are very reasonable facts. <laughs> <laughs> um, everything that you just said is all true <laughs> and realistic. Sure. Um, yes. Uh, uh, if nothing changes, Social Security will run out of money in 2033. That's what projections say. Um, even the Social Security Board of Trustees says the trust funds will be depleted in 2041. If it's depleted in 2033, payroll taxes will only cover 77% of scheduled benefits. All this is just facts. You would not be here if that's all you came to do. So clearly, <laughs> your idea of how to handle this, it, it must be spicy. <laughs> it must be something that some people will not agree with. So what is your solution to all of this? Sure. In very broad strokes, I think we should stop giving Social Security or at least severely curtail what we give in Social Security to the, the wealthiest cohort that receives it, which are well-off senior citizens, well-off retirees. Uh, that's that's maybe a spicy take. I don't even I don't even think it's that spicy. I think it's just uh, an honest. You know, I think anybody who looks at this problem, honestly, would have to come to that conclusion, quite frankly. And well-off means... Uh, well, if, I mean, you could draw these lines wherever you want. There's, I mean, and, I, and I'm not going to say like we should draw the line at a certain income level or something like that, right? 
But uh, when you look at the the math here, what you're doing, and, and so this is the piece that I wrote this past week for reason, is like Republicans in the House proposed some pretty significant cuts to welfare programs, something like $150 billion and that they would have tried to save by cutting out of the discretionary budget. Uh, the reason those changes are happening is because the cost of Social Security is ballooning and ballooning quite rapidly. I mean, if you look at the most uh, recent CBO report, they say that Social Security is going to account, Social Security and Medicare, which is an, a, a connected problem, um, is going to account for about half of all spending increases over the next decade. And so what that's doing is that's pushing other things in the budget out. And that, you know, if, if it's either pushing other things in the budget into a territory where we have to borrow more money to pay for them, and there, there is less of an appetite to do that these days in Washington. So if you're not going to borrow to fund the discretionary part of the budget, then you've got to get rid of it. So effectively, what the growth of Social Security costs are forcing policymakers to do is to make a choice between who gets paid first. There's not enough money to go around, so who gets paid first? Do we pay wealthy retirees first, or do we pay uh, needy working class families, single moms with kids first. And I think, like, I don't think anybody could look at that and say, yeah, of course, the wealthy grandparents who have million dollar estates and, and huge nest eggs, those people should get paid before uh, other people who might be needier, or might be, might be more uh, hard up. So that's like, that's the basic question that needs to be asked here. It's a question that nobody's really asking in Congress because we silo off Social Security as like, oh, it's mandatory spending. We can't touch that. Or it's the third rail of politics. We can't talk about that. But no, every year, every time we pass a budget, you're making a choice about what to prioritize. And Congress is prioritizing funding wealthy seniors over uh, other things. And I mean, that could be anything. It could be welfare payments. It could be anything. It could be defense. It could be whatever. Uh, but if you're going to pay wealthy seniors first, it means everything else has to go. I mean, part of the reason Congress prioritizes wealthy seniors <laughs> is because Congress is full of wealthy seniors. <laughs> hey, you might be onto something there. I mean, you know, but this is a, a surprising stance uh, from Reason Magazine. You know, I mean, this is I, I will say that as as a journalist and, and again, we're speaking broad strokes that generally um, I would imagine that the libertarian stance would be Social Security is a welfare program. Let's get rid of it. That's what I would expect to hear oh. from a libertarian. And absolutely, if, if you want to have that conversation, I would be happy to have that conversation. I think there are there are a variety of uh, things that could be done and should be done. And of course, I think the ultimate libertarian approach would be to, to do away with Social Security entirely. Yes, I don't think that's, that's what I would expect. Totally realistic. Yeah, I don't think that's that's not a totally realistic next step. Uh, but of course, if Congress wanted to wanted to propose that, I would I would probably support it would depend on the specifics, of course. Uh, and I think there is a sense you know, politically, there's a sense out there that people have, you know, that people have paid into Social Security and they've got to get something for it. I think there's also uh, always going to be a desire, as I said at the beginning, to make sure that people who are older and can't work anymore are not just fully destitute. Like I'm, you know, I think there is, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be something that government would do, but there would need to be some sort of social safety net there. Uh, but that being said, we've been arguing for changes to Social Security uh, and, and this sort of this sort of dynamic between the, the way the entitlements are really killing the safety net. That's something that we've been arguing for a long time. Uh, my, my colleague, uh, Nick Gillespie, wrote a feature about 10 years ago. It was cover story for a reason um, in which right in one of the opening paragraphs of the piece, he said the demographic math is irrefutable. Entitlements are killing the safety net. 
Like, so this is an argument that the libertarians have been making for a while. I think it's just an argument that hasn't really been listened to because we're on, on both sides of the aisle right now, you have groups that don't want to touch Social Security, don't even want to have this conversation about what the costs of Social Security might be uh, in terms of the future federal budget. I mean, there are, are there's always arguments uh, about that have to do with the wealthiest among us and Social Security. One is that why are they even getting Social Security? Because it represents such a tiny amount of what they, you know, plan for in their retirement, right? I mean, that's just a minuscule amount. In fact, I was listening in when I went to my... <laughs> When I went to my retirement planning, I happened, you know, I was in the conference room and the, there was a, somebody in the in the room next to me who clearly was in an entirely different income bracket. And I remember him saying, well, you know, and don't forget your Social Security. And the client laughed like it was such a minuscule amount of what his retirement was going to be. He just laughed it off. So there, I, I think you have something going here like it's. I don't even think the wealthiest among us even count it. I mean, on the other hand, what about simply raising the retirement age to the point? I mean, because when we first, when they first created Social Security, life expectancy is more than 15 years higher than when Social Security began. That would also solve part of, at least part of this problem. Yeah, I think if you're going to talk about fixing the Social Security problem, uh, there's got to be a bunch of different solutions, right? I think maybe that's one of them, raising the retirement age. Uh, you mentioned the, you know, when the, when the program was created, actually, this is one of my favorite stats, even though it's a little bit misleading, is that, you know, you could get benefits at age 65, but average life expectancy in the country was like 61. <laughs> so the average person actually died before they qualified for Social Security, which is obviously not true anymore. Yeah. Now, there was also a lot more child mortality yes. back then. So that depresses the overall, yeah. you know, numbers there. But just look more recently even about uh, you know, the 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 wealth that the retired class of Americans has accumulated here. The the average value of a retired person's assets in 1989, we're not talking that far in the past, right? We're talking the year Taylor Swift was born was about $217,000 according to the Federal Reserve. Today it's $538,000. It's doubled. Yeah. And that's inflation adjusted in just, you know, in in whatever in 30 years or so. Um, and so you've got you. I mean, you have to rethink the fundamentals of a program that is as much as we don't want to think as much as I, I don't think anybody in Congress wants to think about it as a welfare program. That's really what it is. You're transferring money from one group to another. And it just doesn't make any sense. You would never build a welfare program. You would never get Congress to approve the construction of a new welfare program that took money directly from the paychecks of workers and transferred it to a wealthy cohort somewhere in this country. Like that wouldn't get through either, neither party would support that in Congress. But yet that's what we have and it persists just because this is the way we've always done yeah. it. So we keep I'd doing. argue that our tax system kind of does that now, but that's an argument for another time. Less directly yeah, though, right? Yeah, it's yeah, directly. Sure, sure. But we get yeah, we'll, we'll argue that another time, Eric. We need to take a break. Uh, we're talking about social security and, and how to fix it. Um, with me is Eric Bame of Reason Magazine. We're gonna take a break, so stay with us. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. And today we're talking about Social Security and how to fix it. I mean, if you want to talk about one of the issues that 
is just kind of a perennial argument. This is this is one of them. With me is Eric Baim, a reporter at Reason Magazine, uh, one of the uh, I, I guess classic um, libertarian publications, and. Eric's idea is that we should just stop giving Social Security benefits to the wealthiest among us. And I I feel like this is an odd topic because it's hard for me to argue against that, Eric. I mean, you're right. You said this at the beginning. That is difficult for me to say, you're wrong. I mean, yeah, I'm not wealthy. (laughs) I don't want to be paying into Social Security all my life and then have it go to Warren Buffett, right? I don't. Yeah, he's well over retirement age. I don't want to have to be paying out to him. On the other hand, is this the best solution? Like, is this the most efficient way to fix the Social Security problem? So let's kind of walk through, let me walk you through some of the other solutions and and see what you think. Because we've already talked about raising the retirement age, which to me feels like a relatively easy fix. But what about the Social Security tax cap? Because this gets brought up a lot. Some people who never make it to the Social Security tax cap may not realize that there is a cap that you reach a certain point. If you reach a certain point (laughs) um, in earnings, I think the cap is somewhere. I think that it got raised to like $160,000. Once you reach $160,000, any income above that, you don't have to pay into Social Security. You don't have to pay your FICA anymore. So people who make more than $160,000 a year, they suddenly somewhere in the year get a raise because <laughs> they're no longer paying FICA. And um, that, 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 only, that only applies to like 6% of the working population. Um, but that's the wealthiest among us, right? So if we were to remove that, we're talking, I, I looked it up before we came on to record this. We're talking about like over a trillion dollars if we were just to remove that. If if we just took that cap away and they simply had to pay into FICA out of all their income. We're not talking about a huge amount of money coming out of their paychecks each time, but it would for the Social Security Fund, it would represent a large amount of money. What about that? Yeah, that's that's one interesting idea. Um, as a libertarian, I sort of have a natural aversion to raising taxes on anyone, but I think you're you're getting at something that is true here that it is kind of unfair that uh, you know we don't tax all earnings equally for this program if it is really like a you know a, a, a social entitlement program. Um, just to kind of go over a few of the numbers here, like Social Security's funding, it's a, it's a twelve point four percent payroll tax, and it's usually split 50-50 between employers and employees. Uh, There have been a number of proposals in Congress over the years. I think this is something that Bernie Sanders has put up a a couple of different times in bills to uh, maybe not lift the cap completely, but to implement a new tax on earnings above like $250,000. So have keep the cap in place, but then like for people that are making even more. And you're right, that would generate maybe somewhere around a trillion dollars over 10 years. That that doesn't even get you close to solving the long-term deficit for Social Security. So in addition to doing that, you would probably also, if you if you want to just fully lean into, let's use tax increases to fix it. Let's keep the program solvent by just putting more money in, which is one way you can balance the, the two sides out, right? If we're spending more than we're taking in, hey, let's just collect more in taxes. 
uh, you would also have to raise the rate probably. So because again, most and most of the super wealthy are not are not subject to this payroll tax anyway, because most of the super wealthy are not earning right. a paycheck in the first place, right? Elon Musk is not getting a, a paycheck, right? He's, right. He's got all sorts of other ways to earn money. So uh, this is really only you're only capturing revenue here from people who are working, and as you correctly pointed out, most of the revenue anyway is coming from people who are below the tax uh, the tax cap now. So you'd probably have to raise the rate. This is what the people that I talk to about Social Security say. You have to raise the rate pretty significantly. I think the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget said something like a 22% increase would be necessary. This was a few years ago. The numbers may have changed. That's a huge tax increase on people, on working families, people who are dealing with inflation right now. Right? You're taking more out of their paycheck to continue this conveyor belt of revenue from those people to relatively wealthy retirees. And so, like, you know, may, you can maybe make the numbers work. Maybe there's, you know, raise this, you know, by this many percentage points, raise the cap here, tax these people over there, whatever. Uh, it's you're still the fundamental disconnect here is still that you have fewer workers paying into the program relative to the number of retirees. And you still have this sort of bigger moral question of, like, why do we have a welfare system that is solely designed to transfer revenue from young people to old people? Uh, again, I want to go back to that piece because I think it's a really good one, the one that, that Nick wrote uh, for reason about a decade ago, kind of kind of predicting a lot of these problems. And he proposed in there, uh, just to, like fence off the idea that libertarians are not open to these ideas. Like he proposed in there that we should just replace Social Security with, uh, with a, a broad social welfare program that covers all citizens regardless of age. The pure, the, you know, the, the actual poor, the truly destitute in old age could still be taken care of. Uh, but that changes the math completely. Then you and then you're no longer taxing, or maybe you're reducing the taxes on uh, on those you know working people who are actually trying to make ends meet, rather than talking about a plan to take more money from them uh, at a time when they can't See, afford. See, I, I completely 100% agree with that. And I, this is yeah. not the first time I've agreed with Nick Gillespie. I'm an independent, by the way, <laughs> not a libertarian, but I have a real problem with having our our social support system be connected to jobs. I have a problem with a system that is trying to force people to remain employed, meaning that employers have an outsized power um, by connecting their very well-being and the health of their bodies to their jobs. Um, giving the rich way too much power over other people. That's a feudal system that I absolutely abhor. Um, so if, if your solution of taking the wealthy off the social security benefits um, is sort of a, I mean, I, I guess you're proposing it then because this is, might be the, the most possible. I mean, I cannot imagine getting through Congress Nick Gillespie's idea. That's just, we're, we're not going to get that through. Well, I would love to see some sort of a hybrid thing where younger workers can just opt out of the program entirely and, and you know, rely on, on private uh, retirement benefits. There, there have been studies that have been done that, like, if you take the amount of money starting at age 20 or 25 that you're going to contribute to Social Security over your lifetime and you just put that into some form like of a SEP IRA form. or something. Right, right. The Tax Foundation did a study like this a few years ago. They looked at 400, they had 400 different hypothetical people. So different, you know, earnings over the course of their career, single family, uh, you know, or single, you know, individuals are earning for a family, you know, couples working, all this different stuff. They looked at all these different things and all but four of the 400 cases that they looked at, people came out better off 
with some sort of like semi-mandatory private, you know, social security system where it's actually your money. Like I think most people think of social security as like, oh, it's my money. I paid into it. I'm entitled to it. And that's not true at all. Like your money is going to Mr. Jones up the street. Yeah, my money is- And you're just hoping that you'll get paid by somebody- the baby boomer couple next door. Yeah. Right, right, right. You'll just hope that you're going to get paid by somebody- 30 or 40 years from now, I don't want to assume how, how old you are, but like you're just assuming, I'm just assuming, I'm hoping that somebody years from now will pay for me. Uh, but if you privatize it, you know, and, and this is maybe a slightly different conversation, but if you privatize it, it is your own money that you then look after and take care of and invest however you want. And I think that, you know, obviously the success of like 401ks and private retirement savings show that that, that works for many people. If it doesn't work for everybody, maybe you need some sort of a social safety net, but we don't anymore need this kind of broad uh, this broad social security program that's just an old age entitlement. I don't think it makes any sense. I don't think you'd ever build this system today in America of 2023. Um, and so like, why do we keep funding it? Then? We keep funding it, though, Eric, because the people who get elected to Congress are by and large elderly people. That's part of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, senior citizens have a lot of influence in our democracy, you know, because they vote in larger numbers and they have a lot of wealth, which is they kind have of the money. Of yeah. They're the ones right? who have money. They're yeah, the ones exactly. who donate. They're the ones who get elected to Congress. And frankly, once someone gets elected to Congress in either the House or the Senate, their wealth goes up incremental. I mean, not incrementally, exponentially. Um, and then they become even more powerful and able to influence it. I mean, there is a vast amount of research showing that the older you are, the wealthier you are, the more you're able to influence policy and the more you influence policy to benefit your own generation, your own class. Let me, I, I like the amount of agreement that we're having here. So let me actually propose one other thing uh -oh. that I think that I think you and your listeners would really, that I, I think this uh -oh. is like a, a thing that, that should be talked about more, right? Uh, is that I, I think if you're a Democrat or you're a liberal or a progressive in this country right now, if you're somebody who thinks the government should be doing more for people, whether that means like building infrastructure or whether it means welfare programs, then then you have to think about changing the way Social Security works. Go back to what we were talking about in the first segment, right? That like as the cost of Social Security grows and it's going to account, Social Security and Medicare are going to account for half of all the new spending that's already baked in in the next decade. Like that really severely limits the ability of government to do anything else, right? If, if you think the government should spend more money on other things, that money's just not there. And the appetite for borrowing seems to be drying up. And then, and then there's also a political cost here, right? That like, let's say, you, you know, you, you don't get many opportunities as a political party in this country to rewrite the tax code in a big way. You might get an opportunity every decade or so if you're lucky, right? Like you, the, the Democrats had Obamacare, Republicans had a chance to, to make some changes to the tax code in the past decade. These opportunities don't come along often. And do you want to waste that political capital? Maybe I shouldn't say waste, but do you want to use that political capital on, on raising taxes on working families and on, and on refiguring out the, the income tax, the income cap to keep Social Security solvent? Or do you want to spend it on something else, something that you'd actually rather do? Like you, you're going to have an opportunity. You may have an opportunity uh, to, you know, to to do one big thing in a set number of years. And we can either keep this conveyor belt chugging that funds generally wealthier retirees with the earnings of workers, 
or we could do something else. And so I think Democrats like naturally will have to come around to talking about this. And we're going to see a kind of reconfiguration of the way we think this issue works. I think everybody is still kind of stuck in the in the bush because it was Republicans, you know, under George W. Bush who were the last time any sort of big conversation about Social Security happened. So we still have this idea that it's like conservatives and Republicans who want to change Social Security and it's Democrats who want to keep it the same. And that's, I don't think, really true anymore. You listen to Donald Trump or you listen to J.D. Vance, you listen to some of the populists on the right. When they get asked about Social Security, the first thing they say is, we're not going to touch it. We're not going to change it. We're going to keep the money flowing because that's what connects to their political interests, right? And so we've got to kind of, I think there's got to be a reframing of this debate. And I think it's going to have to come from the left because it's not going to come from the right. I mean, the thing for me is like, the focus and the focus that we've had so far is talking about individuals and the difficulty, the, the problems that we have in, in focusing on the wealthy and, and the working class and the poor in this country. And for me, some of the biggest problems is, is especially in our tax system, the focus on the power of corporations. Like for me, that's the biggest issue that are this, com- this company sees corporations as citizens with power equal to an actual human being and it focuses all of its benefits on actual companies even that giving them more benefits than in a than a person which is part of the reason why Nick Gillespie's plan appeals to me is because we need by giving individuals actual autonomy and breaking them away from the power of a of a of a company um that means that we're no longer privileging a, a corporation to either take away your retirement benefits or or not. Um, and so to a certain extent, this whole discussion of, uh, yes, I agree, our our tax system benefits the, the ultra wealthy. That's absolutely true. And it is also true that it siphons money away from the lower income earners and, and towards the upper income earners. But it also siphons money away from taxpayers in general toward corporations. And that's true with our social safety net as well. And I mean, then that's something that we have to grapple with when it comes to social security. Part of the reason that why social security is in trouble is because instead of co- companies having to give them their employees retirement benefits and pensions, they're relying on the government to pay them through Social Security. They don't give them pensions anymore. Yeah, but I think you and I would disagree about a lot of the specifics of like how the ideal retirement savings plan should work for yeah, Americans. Yeah, we disagree. But I think we agree. <laughs> I, think, I think we would agree very much on the fact that like what you said there about personal autonomy is really central to this. And I think that's what people actually want, right? People have very strong generally positive feelings about Social Security because they see it as something that they can trust, something that they know is going to be there, right? And that's really the key is that is that people want to know that they're going to have a secure retirement. And so is there a way to, to get to that goal? Is there a way to provide that for people uh, in a way that makes more sense than, again, this system that right now really is, is just a conveyor belt of wealth? It's just a wealth transfer from people who are younger and generally less well off to people who are older and retired and more well off. And I don't think that makes any sense. So we could, you know, and we certainly will, I hope, in this country have a big debate over what should replace it. Uh, but the the current system, it makes no sense. And, and you wouldn't design this today. So there's no reason why we should keep, you know, the idea that we should keep this thing running just because we've always had it. That's very unsatisfying to me. Okay, um, we need to take another break. We will be back in just a moment. I'm talking to Eric Bame about Social Security and what to do about it. 
Uh, this is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. We're going to be back in just a moment. Good to have you back. This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley, and we're talking about how to fix Social Security. And we're agreeing more than I ever thought that we would. But I, I want to go back to this idea of, of pensions because we're talking about um, your idea here is that we shouldn't be paying the wealthiest among us Social Security benefits. And again, from the very beginning, it's really hard to disagree with that. I absolutely agree with you not being wealthy. So maybe I'd disagree if I were very, very wealthy. <laughs> Um, but I don't want to pay into so I don't want to pay those FICA taxes all my life and then have them going towards someone who doesn't need my money. But I also want to go back to the number of things that companies, corporations have been allowed to increase their profits by shifting responsibility to the government. And retirement is one of them. You know, going back decades, and I'm not I'm definitely not one of those people who wants to do remembers the good old days with fondness, you know, but Social Security has become so important to so many seniors because so many companies stopped providing retirement even to their workers who stayed with them for decade upon decade. Do you think that companies have no responsibility to to people who stay with the company for 20, 30 years. No, I, I think it's that, you know, I think that's something that every individual is going to be able to suss out for themselves, right? Depend. I mean, the, the circumstances for one worker are not going to be the same as the circumstances for another worker. Um, and so that's why I think it makes it makes sense to ensure that you have some sort of uh, of safety net system in place for people who you know, who do retire with no savings, for example. But I think the tremendous growth that you've seen and the tremendous success in, in private retirement savings, the fact that that now makes up the bulk of what most people have when they, uh, when they do head into retirement, not saying everyone, of course, but most people, um, I think that speaks to the ability of, of the market to adapt and to handle this changing, the changing circumstances that you describe there, right? People no longer work with one company for their entire lifetime. So, you know, a company-based pension doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and, and that's doubly true because like when a corporation maybe goes bankrupt, you know, you then suddenly your retirement savings are gone. By, by privatizing that in a sense, not that company corporate pensions were kind of private anyway, but by individualizing that, what you've allowed people to do is, you know, I've worked at four different jobs in my career and I've been able to take my retirement savings from each one of them, right? And it's it's mine. It moves along with me as I go. It certainly could be more seamless than it is. It's kind of complicated and frustrating sometimes. You have to fill out a lot of forms to roll things over and uh, the money is not as liquid as you would like it to be sometimes. But by and large, that system works and it works for, for people like me at least and, and for younger workers. Uh, for you and I, you, you know, I know it's going to be there. It's not going to disappear because in 2033, Congress says, "Whoop, never mind. Uh, we're going to just completely change all the rules about Social Security, and now you don't get it." Uh, so, I mean, I know what I've what I've saved. Certainly, there are people who are who are unable to save for retirement. There's people who are you know having a hard time making ends meet, and and so for those people, what I would say is the last thing we should be doing is taking a larger chunk of their paychecks. If that's what it's going to take to keep Social Security solvent, like that, that makes them worse off. That doesn't fix the problem. But now, we have so. we're seeing an increase in the number of people over age sixty five 
there's a larger number of, of elderly people in poverty now. Um, it's the highest level since 2002. There's been an increase over the past few years. Um, and about 23% of Americans over age 65 now live in poverty. So yeah, we have an, an uptick in elderly poverty. And I think that's a problem. More seniors are being pushed into poverty in recent years. And that means that for whatever reason, our retirement system is not working. And Social Security is not keeping people out of poverty. Well, right. So it doesn't seem to be working. But I would, and that's I would with say Social there's, Security there's not two going things bankrupt. that get conflated there. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's two things there that, that get conflated sometimes, right? And without having a debate over the numbers, because that's that's boring, uh, you said like, you know, there's older, there's more uh, elderly people who are in poverty right now. So I think what policymakers have to ask themselves is what part of that is actually the problem? It's the poverty part that's the problem, right? Their age shouldn't matter. It's we, we would like to have a social safety net that keeps people out of poverty. Yes. So to have an entitlement system that is just purely based on age. And whether that age is 67 or 70 or, or wherever you want to set the age, having an entitlement system that's just purely based on age, it, it, I don't know that it ever made sense. It may have made sense once upon a time. Uh, it doesn't make sense now. If there is a problem, if there really is an acute issue of seniors falling into poverty, let's see how to fix that. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a government solution. Maybe it's a private solution. Maybe it's a mix of the two. We would, you know, disagree about okay, that, I'm so sure. Wait, I want to make like, sure I'm staying with you. Let's address that problem. Sorry, Eric, let's not make it an age I, I don't mean sure. to interrupt you, except I want to make sure I'm understanding you before you go a little further. You're saying we need to create a social safety net that steps in when anybody falls below the poverty level, period. I'm saying that I think we would probably disagree about what the specifics of that safety net would look like. But sure, I think like setting aside my libertarian hat for a moment and just looking at the way the government operates and the things that Congress does and the priorities that the American people like to see reflected in their government. Like, yeah, of course, we'd like to have some sort of a safety net that keeps people from falling into poverty. I'm saying that it makes and, and we and we do have that, of course, we have yes. many programs that do that already. Uh, and there could be, I'm sure there's a lot of overlapping and, and to greater or lesser you know, effectiveness. Uh, right. <laughs> many, many, many things that could be streamlined about that safety net already. Uh, just in terms of making it easier for people to access and, and you know, make you know, more sense, be less, uh, less counterproductive. But it, it doesn't make any sense to prioritize Social Security. Getting back to the, the piece I wrote this week and the reason why you invited me on the podcast here is to talk about the ways in which Social Security is, is really pushing against that safety net. These two things are intention, right? There's not enough money to go around right now. We spent over $6 trillion this year and only collected about $4 trillion in taxes. That means you're borrowing to make up the difference. And if you're not willing to, to continue borrowing at that level, which it doesn't seem like Congress is 100% sold on, then something's got to go. And you have to decide who gets paid first, basically, because there's not enough money to go around. And so it doesn't make any sense in my mind to say, well, we have to protect Social Security at all costs when that is in some ways the least defensible of these programs. Like every every welfare program and every wealth transfer program is is going to make libertarians a little bit grumpy, uh, but I think social security is kind of like uniquely awkward in the way that it's uh, that it is it's just an old age program. It doesn't it doesn't actually address poverty. It doesn't actually address someone's needs. Uh, it it just is an automatic entitlement. Um, and yet we've kind of siloed it off in the in the budget discussions as this you know oh it's a mandatory program. 
everything else. All those other welfare programs are discretionary programs. We can fiddle with them every year when the budget comes around, but we can't touch Social Security. And I don't think that makes any sense. We should be we should be willing to talk about changing Social Security if we're going to talk about changing those other programs too. If we followed your idea and we did not give Social Security benefits to the wealthiest earners, does that mean they stop paying in? Yeah, that's a tough one. And you'd have to work out the numbers on that. I mean, okay, so my ideal solution as a libertarian is that we kind of phase out. I'll just give you that first so you can disagree with it, is that we sort of phase out Social Security over a period of years anyway. And uh, and people yeah, who want to opt out. Yeah, we're super going to disagree on that. People yeah. can just opt out if they want uh, and take their money and uh, you know not not have it taken out of their paychecks. I think that would be great. Other people probably disagree. That's fine. Um the, on the other side of it is that, you know, no, I, I don't I don't think you would say those people can't pay him because there's already that that uh, that cap that exists on the revenue side. Right. We already kind of keep the, the wealthy from paying in above a certain level. Would they still have to contribute? Sure. Of course. My taxes contribute to welfare programs that I don't benefit from that I don't take yeah, part in. I pay school taxes. Uh, and right. Exactly. So I, I don't think there's any sort of of like moral or ethical dilemma there in saying, well, we're going to make rich people pay for this. Uh, even though they're not going to get the benefits, like yeah, that, that's that's the way the system works for everything else. I think really what this what this requires is just that we think about Social Security the way we think about all of these other wealth transfer programs that exist within the government, uh, and we treat it the same way. We treat it as a as a program that should address a specific need, uh, in this case, poverty and old age, rather than just being a broad entitlement that everyone gets. I think that, you know, it's not the ideal libertarian solution for sure, but I think that at least moves us closer to a more sensible, uh, a more sensible fiscal situation for sure, a more sensible kind of budgetary debate. I would actually be okay getting rid of Social Security if we did have a program that was closer to a SEP IRA sort of type program that just belonged to every person. I, that'd be great. I would like we could certainly find common ground to agree on a thing that you and I would both vote for if we were in Congress. Like there's yes. enough overlap there that I think that's true. And I think giving that, you know, you said the word earlier, like giving autonomy to individuals over this is really important. I think that one of the reasons why this debate over Social Security is so fraught is that as I said earlier, people want to know that their retirement is secure, but people fear, are kind of constantly living in fear that it won't be. That Congress, you know, those idiots that we can't trust, you know, those guys could just take it away whenever they want or could make changes to it whenever they want. And and that is really unsettling and it should be unsettling. Like that's that would that's kind of unfair that we've set up this system that forces people to be dependent on future workers that don't exist yet and stupid politicians. And yeah, but that's what we've got. We've got this system that, that those two things get to decide the fate of your retirement benefits. And that's just dumb. It's just dumb. We should have something that makes more sense. So very few things attract quite as many opinions, dissenting opinions, as the issue of Social Security. I am sure that you have thoughts about how to reform Social Security. Maybe you agree with those in Congress who feel we should do nothing at all and leave Social Security exactly as it is, although that would require some more borrowing. Whatever your thoughts are, we want to hear them. So email us. It's hearmeout at slate.com. If this show gets you thinking, maybe it gets you a little fired up, it is accomplishing its goal. That's what we want to do. You can let us know by leaving us a great rating and review. 
however you listen. Not only does that let us know how we're doing, it also helps other people find the show, and we appreciate it. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by the wonderful Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the excellent Senior Director of Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is the fantastic VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open.